Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? It's good to be gathered here. It's good to be with you all. Uh, excited for the opportunity to look at God's Word together, uh, praying that it's a blessing to you. I, I do want to say thanks to Doug for filling in in a pinch. And uh, while he might not feel comfortable up here, we appreciate his willingness to be used by the Lord. So uh, let's pray as we prepare our hearts to receive God's Word. Our God and Father, again, we thank you for the privilege that is ours to worship you, to be gathered in your name, and to know because of Jesus we approach you forgiven and free. We thank you, Father, that your love um, is greater for us than any love that we could ever receive. And Father, I pray this morning as your Spirit works in our hearts that we would be teachable. Father, that we would receive your Word and implant it into our hearts. And Father, that we would leave here today encouraged and strengthened so that we can live for you and shine for you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us and guide us. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for being a great and loving Savior. And all these things, Father, we, we give thanks and we give you the praise in your Son's precious name. Amen. This morning, uh, we're going to be wrapping up our series on the holiness of God, and I trust it's been a blessing for you as it has been for me as we considered the grandness and greatness of our Lord. We've considered the holy scene of Isaiah 6 as Isaiah was caught up in a vision to heaven where he saw the throne of God and the glory of God and the seraphim that were around the throne crying, holy, holy, holy. We saw the response of Isaiah as he considered himself, woe is me. We looked at the, the tragic consequences when we infringe upon God's holiness. When we presume upon ourselves that we have a better understanding of who God is as holy than who he is as holy. And we considered Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah. Last week, we looked at and considered the re reality of the holiness of Christ and his tender call to not be afraid. And I so appreciated those words in the scriptures because when we consider the majesty and the holiness of God, it, in myself at least, I know and I agree with Isaiah, I don't, I don't belong. I don't belong in God's presence. And yet he says, don't be afraid. Come to me. Jesus certainly is holy. And Jesus certainly pursues us to come into his holy presence. And so this morning, as we close our time in this theme I want us to consider our response to the truth that God is holy. Plainly stated, so what? I mean, we've been considering God's holiness and His majesty and, and how He is enthroned in power and, 
and, and glory, and, and, and that's great and wonderful. Those are, those are awesome truths for us to consider, and it helps us understand who He is and His greatness. But the reality then is, okay, those are true, but what does that mean for us? Why would God reveal Himself in such a way, and how should it affect our lives? And, and maybe you've thought that at different points throughout this series. So what? Maybe you've thought and agreed that it's great that God is holy. And maybe for some of you, you've thought it's a terrifying thought that God is holy. Maybe for some, it's been calming, and for others, it's been perplexing. But what does this mean? I mean, how should the truth of God's holiness affect my everyday life? And can I give you the spoiler? It should affect your lives in every way. The fact that God is holy is an invitation by Him to not only consider His holiness but to consider our holiness in light of Him and how we should live in light of that. If you haven't asked the above question, you should. You should be thinking every moment. Because God is holy, how then should I live? The reality is the truth that God is holy should compel us to not only seek the Holy One, but to pursue personal holiness in our lives. God exhorts us to be holy. He doesn't just sheepishly invite us to consider holiness. He doesn't say, hey, if you feel like it, or hey, if it's working out for you today. No, God exhorts us. He commands us. He calls us into holiness. He calls us to be set apart. He calls us to be different to be set apart for Him and to live lives that honor Him by obeying His Word and living it out personally. The Scriptures are full of commands to pursue holiness. Having a relationship with Jesus should compel us to seek personal holiness. And so what we want to do today is to focus on the reality that our lives should be different than they once were. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have a past that has been reckoned by the cross of Jesus Christ. The past is gone. The old things have passed away. New things have come. We are given a new life, a new spirit, a new hope. And we should be living differently as a result of knowing Jesus Christ. Listen, practical holiness focuses on the here and now. It answers the question, how then shall we live? We're talking about today. Because I think what happens is in the Christian life, we receive these truths about salvation. We receive the the amazing blessings of what God has provided. And we look forward to eternity and we forget there is a right now. 
We consider the greatness of the gospel and our final glorification and how we will see God for who he truly is. And, and we look forward to that. And then we're caught up in the everyday of life where we get distracted. And we forget that in every station of life that we face, whether it's in the home or in the workplace or in our communities, that God is calling us to be set apart. He is calling us to personal holiness. He is calling us to live differently. Not just Sunday mornings, not just when we have our act together, but really the call to urgency that as a child of the King, we are to live differently. And maybe for some of you, you realize that and and the tension is, how is that possible? How can this happen? I I know these things are true. And maybe some of you are feeling the the weight of guilt or or shame, knowing, hey, I've given it a shot and I I still have these struggles. And and I just want to encourage you, the, the fact that you're engaging the battle of personal holiness the reality that you're aware that apart from Christ, you are not able to live a holy life. That's a good thing. And not to give up on that pursuit. Not to cave in and think, well, maybe tomorrow. Or maybe you've said it's too late. How then shall we live? And the great news, and it really is great news, is that God graciously speaks to us to provide clarity into the question of what our lives should look like as a follower of His Son. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter is towards the end of the New Testament. It's before the book of 2 Peter. Thank you. Someone got that irony. This morning, we're going to look at a compelling call to practical holiness. And I was reminded this week in my preparation of a conversation that I was able to have with a dear saint in the faith a little over 10 years ago. Uh, some, some of you may remember this conversation. It was in, the, in August of 2012. Uh, I had the uh, opportunity to interview Claude Gettle uh, during Sunday school, and um, we, we had just an opportunity for him to share about his life. Uh, at the time in 2012, Claude was 95, almost 95 years old, um, and, and there was something in that conversation that I, I remembered this week, and uh, it kind of has stuck with me, and so... I wanted to share it with you. And so what I did uh, this week was to visit him. On October 20th of this year, he'll be 105 years old. I asked him permission, and he kind of nodded. At first, he was like, okay, so what are you asking me? And I said, I want to share this clip. And he's like, okay, go ahead. Um. And while Claude hasn't been able to worship with us for the last few years, he watches every Sunday on our live stream. This is what he said about God's holiness. I looked at Scripture in a way that uh, Enos uh, 
Bible says, be ye holy for I am holy. That's, Jesus said that, be ye holy for I am holy. And, man, I'm telling you, I, I, I found out that the Bible, it'll teach you to change your life because when you read the Bible and it really starts, you're looking for something really for God to speak to you. I, he, he touches something in your life that you, that's not right. And, and you get down on your knees and you want to ask for forgiveness, you know. So uh, that's very important. Obedience is very important. I mean, God got country with, like, very angry with his people because they didn't, the way they acted, you know. We've got to be careful about that, you know. They have, start complaining or, or, you know, God don't like that. Uh, it's, not, it's not my world or it's not your world. It's, it's his world. He created everything, you know. I looked at scripture in a way that... uh... So, I could say amen, walk off the podium, and I think that would be enough. Um, But did you catch the one thing that Claude mentioned? The Bible will teach you to change your life. I think sometimes we get lost in this mystery. Like, okay, God, I know you want to change me. How? How? In what ways? And the answers are right under our noses. They're right here. And while I love to teach the scriptures, and it's my calling and privilege to bring the word of God to you each and every week, you can approach this yourself. And you can read God's word and hear him speak to you. This book is not like any other book in the world. In fact, my Bible says, Holy Bible. And that word holy, right, means set apart, different. Because these are not just words on a page that have been printed for us. This is God's breathed out word to us. And as we consider the call to practical holiness in our lives, I pray that we can echo Peter's words in John's gospel. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. And for all of us, And whatever you're going through, whenever you face it, I pray as a banner over your life, kind of like a rally call, you can be like Peter. Lord, where else are we going to go? Who else is there? How many other people can measure up? No one. Because only Jesus has the words of eternal life. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at this passage in 1 Peter. We're going to consider Peter's words and look at a practical call to holiness. Now the verses we're going to look at... um, for the, the bulk of our time are in First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 
18 or 19. But I want to explain the context to you because, as we know, context is very important. The context of a passage determines its meaning. We're not going to just isolate a few verses and look at them and pull them out of the context and say, well, do this and, and, and this is what it could mean and apply this in this way. We want to see the argument. We want to develop the theme of what Peter's getting at because he wrote these words on the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for a reason. And it begins in the very first verses of 1 Peter. It's a letter that he wrote to saints that were scattered. He called them aliens in 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, those who are chosen. So he's writing to these scattered ones. And, and if we can borrow the term alien in the sense of people that don't belong, like this isn't their home. These are people that had come to know Jesus. And, and while Peter ministered largely to Jewish people, there's some clues in the text in 1 Peter, and we're, we're going to even hit one of those uh, in our passage this morning, that explains that he's likely writing to Gentiles and not Jewish people alone. And that these were believers that had come to life in Jesus, and they were being persecuted. They were suffering greatly for their faith. And they were discouraged. They were worried. They didn't understand how they found life in Jesus, and it's led to so much frustration and trial and suffering. And so he writes a letter to encourage them. So after the greetings in verses 1 and 2, this is what he says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What's the first thing that Peter does to call these people out of their suffering, to remind them of the goodness of God? He calls them to consider the greatness of the salvation that has been given to them as a gift. He invites them to see Jesus, not their circumstances, but to see Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who what? Has caused us to be born again. To be made new. To have a new life in Christ. And we're born again to a living hope, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I love that phrase that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection. Here's what I know, that there is nothing else contingent upon that living hope. It's already sealed. Christ is risen from the dead. End of story. Finished. And so now everything that is promised to us is guaranteed. God's not going to take it back. Satan can't get in the way and distract it. It's ours in Christ because Christ is risen from the dead. And that we are called to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. I don't know if any of you have ever um, received an inheritance from someone. 
whether it's been property or uh, a material possession or a sum of money. But the, the, the inheritance that we are given is not going to fade away. It's not going to be used up. It's not going to tarnish over time. It's not going to lose its value. We are given an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven. And I love this. He says there's an inheritance coming. And you might think, okay, that's great. But what if something happens along the way? Peter says in verse 5, you, the receiver of that inheritance, is protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Church, can I just say this at this point, and this really isn't the, the, the reason why I'm reading this passage, but just so that you know. You're going to get to the finish line of the faith, not by how obedient you try to be. You're going to get to the finish line of your faith because the power of God protects you. It's God, the one that brought you into the relationship, the same God that is going to bring you to the place that he's promised you to be. You are protected by the power of God through faith. And there is a salvation that will be revealed in in the last time the final salvation, the complete sin is gone. We are glorified and we stand in the presence of the Lord where he reigns victoriously over creation. And then he says in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You know what trials are like. They're varied Some last a short amount of time. Some last a very long amount of time. Some of your trials, if you were honest, have not only brought you to your knees, but you wonder if there is ever going to be another way. And Peter says, in light of our inheritance, in in light of the power of God that is revealed for a final salvation, rejoice. Rejoice in suffering. Why? Because your suffering is just like that much compared to eternity. And we read later on in First Peter that our suffering for the sake of Christ allows us to share in His sufferings. Allows us to to begin to enter in what it must have been like for the Son of God to die a criminal's death for sinners like us. It's this salvation in, in verse 10 that the prophets prophesied of grace to come. They searched, they made inquiries, they were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings. Like, we're talking about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, 
Malachi, Zephaniah. Like we're looking at all of these prophets that God called in the Old Testament to speak on his behalf. They made careful inquiries. They searched. They were seeking. How is God going to fulfill these promises of a Messiah? And they pointed our attention to the one that is to come. And in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels look. He's saying, O readers that are frustrated and concerned, when you heard the gospel, the good news, God used those messengers when they didn't understand how it was all going to be put together to bring that message to you so that in this day you would believe. And while those Old Testament prophets had no clue of the certain reality and clarity of when Christ would come and how he would come and what he would do, it was all for our benefit, us today, to hear their words And to understand how God was bringing it all to a culmination. And so what does he say in light of our suffering and in the hope that is ours in Christ? Look at verse 13, and this is where we want to focus in. Therefore, this is the result, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so let's just stop and consider this. In light of the hope that we have that is secure for us, the inheritance that is not perishing, the the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus that guarantees it all, in light of that, Peter says this, prepare your minds for action. Now, the word prepared is an interesting word. Other translations may may be translated, gird up your loins. How many of you, in a practical way, gird up your loins every day? But it was so important in the first century world because there was an inner robe and there was an outer robe that everyone wore. You know, they didn't have suits. They didn't have pants and shirts and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they, they had these train of robes, right, that, that covered them and, and they lived and moved and breathed in their world in the context and confines of these robes. And the gird up your loins meant this. Like if there was an attack or a danger or something, they would take the robe and they would cinch it up. And tuck it in. Why? So their feet could move faster. So they didn't get tripped up on the train of their robe. And when Peter calls these believers and he says, Therefore, prepare your minds. He says, gird up your minds for what? For action. I don't know if you know this, but the Christian life is full of battles. It's a war. There is an enemy, an adversary, and he's seeking to destroy you. 
And Peter says, listen, don't be passive. Don't be reactionary. Don't wait. But prepare yourself for action. Keep sober in spirit. Like, don't get too high. Don't get too low. And every time, you know, a minor affliction hits you, don't cry, woe is me, boo-hoo, and kind of like just cut yourself off from God and all of His people. Keep sober in spirit. Understand the big picture. What's the big picture? The resurrected Christ is coming back for us. And He's giving us an inheritance that can't be taken. Fix your hope. So this prepare to action, this sober reminder, has two imperatives, two commands in the passage that that we're called to to help us prepare. The first one is to fix our hope. To fix our hope on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. Remember the future. That's the first thing Peter says. When you're struggling with the trials of your life, remember there is hope that is coming. And then the second thing that we are called to do is to be holy. Like our Father is holy. Verse 14, as obedient children. Now, I understand how we translate this, but... I think we miss something in the English translation of this phrase. I, I think the better translation of verse 14 is this. Um, As children whose spirit is obedience. Not just as obedient children, right? Like, I have kids. You know that. They're often sermon illustrations, and they love it. They tell me every Sunday that I use them as a sermon illustration. Thank you, Dad. That was great. <laughs> But I have children, and I was once a child, and I know this. There's a difference between wanting to obey my parents and being told to obey my parents. Does that make sense? Okay. So in this relationship that God has with us, he invites us to obey him, to be holy as he is holy. But he's not going to just sit on the throne and demand perfection from us and say, if you get out of line, I'm just going to whap you across and, and, and discipline you that way. No, he's inviting us to. He's calling us to. He shows us the benefit of. And when we are called to personal holiness in our lives, as Peter is exhorting these believers, he's saying, be the people that have a spirit of obedience. Like it's, it's in you because it's in you. This is what you want to do. And this is what you're called to do. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. And this is a clue that he's writing to Gentiles and not Jewish people because they had no clue of the Old Testament. If he was writing to Jewish people, they'd be like, we know we shouldn't do all these things. There were 613 commands. But the Gentiles, they had no clue. So he said, you know, we often, before we knew Christ, were guilty of doing things that we did in ignorance. Now, subconsciously, or maybe in our conscience, that that God said, hey, you know, those things are wrong. Like, we know if we do something wrong sometimes. The world knows. Like, if an unbeliever kills another unbeliever, there's a sense of, yes, that was a wrong thing to do. 
but we're clued in through the message of the gospel and through the reality of our sin in light of His holiness that God has done something for us that we could never do, and that is to take that sin and pay for it and to give us a new righteousness, a new life that is hid in Him. And so he says, don't be like the old self, conformed to the old lusts. And you know what those lusts are, right? Like, we're not just talking about lust in the sexual, immoral sense. We're talking about the lust that is in the flesh to want things, to crave things, to long for things, that just feed yourself. The pleasures of this world. And that could be a, a lot of different things in a room this size. And I would say that any of those lusts really come with the reality of anything that gets in the way of what you want in light of who God wants you to be. You know, those things that you are willing to sacrifice and move mountains for that are not really eternal because you think, you know, I deserve this. This is what I want. And it could be a material thing. It could be an emotional thing. It could be a social thing. But anything, we, we are so good at making idols out of everything. Peter says, get rid of that stuff. Don't be like how you once were. So he says, do not be conformed to the former lusts. And then in verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you. Don't, don't miss over or gloss over that phrase, who called you. Don't just skip through it and say, okay, I know, I know that he called me. Consider the grandness and majesty of the one who called you. Like we were formerly broken and dead. And this holy God called out to you and invited you to come to him by his grace to receive an inheritance and salvation that you don't deserve. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in some of your behavior. Okay, all right. Some of you actually were tracking with me. Not in some of your behavior, not in your Sunday best behavior, but in all of your behavior. Ouch. That's tough. Like, just being completely honest, it is very difficult to be holy in all of my behavior. Because there are times I'm, I'm really good at rationalizing that I could do a better job at figuring out a situation that maybe God can. In all of your behavior, be holy. Why? Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's a direct quote from Leviticus chapter 11. Peter invites these believers to, to reach back into the Old Testament, the Bible that, that they would have had at that time, to consider some words that God had for the nation of Israel in their time of wandering. They were a people that were called out of Egypt. They were wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And, and through Moses, God says, my call to you, Israel, is to be holy in all of your ways because I am holy. Be set apart. 
in the world they were living in, in the world that they were walking into in the promised land, it was very critical for them to be holy and set apart because if they didn't obey God's word, it was going to be trouble for them. And what do we see in the testimony of the Old Testament? We see that they did not heed God's warning to be holy. They often took things into their own hands. They often took a half step of obedience. And you know what I mean by half step of obedience, right? They think that they're in the ballpark of believing and living for God. And they say, yeah, you know, God, we'll, we'll, we'll follow you. You're our God and we're your people. Great. That's wonderful. But, you know, in some of these other areas about getting rid of all the people, you know, we really don't want to do that, God. And it brought trouble to them. And so they dealt with um, the, the, not only the temptation, but following the gods of the people that were living in the land, and they were judged. So be holy, for I am holy. And then in verse 17, this is kind of like, this is why we do it. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. If God is your father, and you address him as father, be holy. Live for him. Verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold or a futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you, you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Why should you be holy in your life? Because the Holy One died for you. End of story. That should be reason enough. Charles Spurgeon said, what is holiness? And he answered, is it not wholeness of character? If you're trying to figure out, okay, you got me. I'll try to be holy. What does that mean? And everything that you do and everything that you are, be holy. Have holy or a wholeness of character. Understand that God has provided a way for you to be put back together even when you feel all broken on the outside. The fact is, to be holy as God is holy takes a determined effort on our part. Meaning, God isn't going to just magically cultivate practical holiness in our lives. We need to live as children with a spirit of obedience. We need to live as if we are children with a spirit of obedience. That we are known to be a people that want to obey our Heavenly Father because He has done for us what we could never do on our own. And, and just for the sake of the love that He has for us, we're going to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I will follow Your Word. To be holy in all of your behavior does not mean perfectionism. And some of you have tried that out. How's that working for you? Perfectionism. It's not that at all. It's not that God expects us to be sinless on earth. We can't be sinless as long as there's an old nature inside of us still. But it does mean that as a child of God, a child of the Holy One, who by grace through faith 
has made us holy. Like positionally, we are made holy once and for all, are called to live in a holy way in God's sight. In Romans 6, 19, Paul says this, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Now, that kind of goes with what Peter is saying here in 1 Peter, right? When he said, don't follow your lusts anymore, your passions. We used to do that. Now, now Paul borrows on the, our willingness and desire to do those things. And he says, listen, you used to do this. I'm speaking in human terms. We're really good at presenting our members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. And it results in further lawlessness, right? You take a step towards sin. And what do you do? You take another step towards sin. And before you know it, you're all the way down the road in something that you never wanted to be involved in. But because you followed your passions, because you followed your flesh, you found yourself in a place that you never wanted to be. But it was the place, it was the only place that it was ever going to take you. He says, we're good at that, but he says, now because you are justified in Jesus Christ, present your members as slaves to righteousness. You were a slave to sin, now be a slave to righteousness, and it results in sanctification. Now, we know what the word sanctification means. We talk about it a lot. It's the daily process of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Right now, for us today, if you know Jesus Christ personally, you are in the process of sanctification. God is making you more like his son. But I think we lose something in that translation for sanctification. If any of you have the NIV Bible, you're going to read in Romans six nineteen at the end there. You're going to read, So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. I think that's a good translation. Now, the Greek word that is used for sanctification is hagiosmos. I know. Go out to lunch today and just talk to the waitress about hagiosmos. Um, They're going to think you're super smart. But at the root of that, because Greek words often were compound words and they had layers to them and all that, but at the root of this word hagiosmos is the word hagios. And that, and that word means holy. It means to be set apart. Why does Paul say we pursue our, in our members righteousness? Because it leads to holiness. Why do we pursue God's righteousness? What do I mean by God's righteousness? His right ways. What are his right ways? the things in this book that are words of life. You know, the hard things that, you know, those verses and passages that you read and think, great. And sometimes we hold everyone else to that standard, but we don't hold ourselves to that standard. Paul says, if you present yourself as members to righteousness, It leads to holiness. And if you're sitting here today thinking, how on earth can I be holy as God is holy? It starts with your desire to pursue God's righteousness in your life. He has a right way for you. And if you're sitting there thinking, that's great, 
What is it? All I can tell you is read the book. It's in there. It's in there in different ways, in different applications, in different seasons, but it's in there. We're to give ourselves to develop habits of holiness. We are to put off the old self, our sinful disposition and habits, and put on the character of holiness. We are to, as Paul exhorts in 1 Timothy 4, 7, and don't worry about the first part, right? Have nothing to do with worldly fables. Like, don't do that. But look at the second part of this verse. On the other hand, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. We're to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. I don't like words like discipline. And I also don't like how discipline relates to the, tr- or the elliptical in my basement. I have a hate-hate relationship with the elliptical in my basement. I do. I know I should do it more, even more than once. I know that. Because when I'm doing something that I want to do and I'm in you know, any kind of physio- physical uh, exertion for more than five minutes and I want to pass out, I know that I need to discipline my body. But I don't like that. We don't like words like discipline. Not in the corrective sense, but in the staying committed sense. Because to be disciplined, especially to be disciplined in light of the spiritual disciplines, means that we have to reorder things in our lives. Some things are going to take precedence over other things. And we need to pursue things that build us up into the image of God's Son. To be disciplined, to pray often, to meditate on the Scriptures, to use our gifts in the body of Christ, to be a witness to to the world that is confused and broken, to be a steward of the resources that God has given us, to love sacrificially when you have been wronged. And I can go on and on, but to be disciplined in the ways of God in life. To take off the old self, which means you will act different than your peers. I've said before, and we remind our kids this all the time, we are different. As children of God, we are different. We're not going to look like the world. We shouldn't look like the world. We shouldn't act like the world. We shouldn't want the things that the world wants. And when they look at us sometimes and they say, you're strange, Just be reminded of what Peter said in 1 Peter 1 when he called the people that he's writing to aliens. We're different. We don't belong. This isn't our home. And we put on the new self which is found in Christ. Church, we are children of God through faith in His Son. Let's have the faith to trust Him today as we live holy lives. And can I just offer a warning to you? Be careful that you don't measure yourself against any other person except for Jesus Christ. We do that in the church sometimes. We look around and we say, well, I'm doing better than they are. I was in church more. I gave more. I serve more. I'm more, more, more. Or we look at that person and say, oh man, they have it all together. I'll never measure up. Don't measure yourself against any other person than Jesus Christ. It's often so easy to look around and compare. But you're not measured against their standard. We are called to be holy like God is holy. 
Keep your attention fixed on Him as the Holy One. And so as we close our time in this series in holiness, I pray that you have been renewed to the holiness of God. He truly is set apart from all others. And He also longs for us to be with Him in relationship as a parent to a child. Our Father longs to be with us. Along the way, He calls us to rise up to His level, to be holy as He is holy. He is never satisfied with leaving us in the muck and the mire of our sin. God has provided His Son to pay for our sin and to free us from its power and to give us His righteousness. And as a promise of our future, He also gives us His Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that the Holy Spirit is given to us at the moment of our salvation as a pledge of the inheritance that is to come. You have God's Spirit inside of you if you know Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to find victory over this life today. Church, we have all the tools necessary to defeat sin in our lives today through the gift of the Holy Spirit. You, you have everything you need. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what you're tempted with. But you have everything that you need through the power of the Holy Spirit to be victorious. Rely on Him in your life as you put off the old self and put on the self, on the, the new self as you present yourself as a slave to righteousness. Now, as we transition to communion, what we're going to do is we're going to sing um, a, a communion hymn that we often sing during this time. Uh, Doug and I think some of the team are coming up, or maybe all the team. We're going to sing the first three verses of this song together, and then we're going to pause and share in the Lord's table. Uh, you, you've received one of these in your pew, maybe in the rack or on the seat. There's two layers to it. There's a top cellophane you peel off and the wafer's there. And then you peel back the foil and that's how you uh, get the, the juice in the cup. Um, but more than that, remember why we're doing this. We do this to remember the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That it was shed for you so that you could be forgiven and so that you could be made holy as he is holy. And what a great gift that is. And before we take this uh, or share in this table, we want to heed the warning of the Apostle Paul to examine our hearts, to look within. And we know the areas of sin and, and, and distress that we have. If there's anything that is in the way of you seeing God this morning, know that through the cross of Jesus you're forgiven. And know that the freedom that he wants to give you is tied into the power of confession. To confess it to God and to acknowledge it. But then to live a different way and, and turn from it and live a life pleasing to him. And as we do that this morning, we, we are just reminded again and again of the power of the cross. Every sin forgiven forever for every child that knows him by name. Let's pray.